The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. What were you drawn to as a child? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So a few years ago, I was recommended this book called Wintering by Catherine May. And I can't remember who told me about it, but they did so because I was trying to understand how we each weather storms, metaphorically speaking. And after some avoidance of the book, I finally got around to reading it, and I loved it. So I highly suggest you grab it, especially if you're experiencing a tough time. But even if you're not, it's full of tools that can help you when you do. I got the chance to bring Catherine onto the show last year to talk about wintering, and she was in the middle of releasing a new book, which feels like a companion to wintering, called Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in Anxious Times. This one's about rediscovering your footing after you've wintered or just rediscovering your footing in general. I like to think of it as a way to get tethered, but not in a trapped way, in a grounding and clear way. In our conversation, Catherine has a ton to say about being more intentional with our time, becoming better community members, awakening our sense of awe, and practicing the art of living with more enchantment. I just love this woman. So enjoy. Here we go. Wintering is a book about the fallow periods of life. So I use the metaphor of winter to think about how ordinary it actually is for every person, not just unlucky people, to have a time in life when they feel like they've been frozen when they can no longer take part in everyday life they might be suffering in some way it feels like we'll never get back on top again and so i used winter to think about that time because actually if you look at the way that nature endures winter it's in these cycles of sometimes withdrawing and sometimes cutting back to the barest bones when you look closely at those things They are the site where all life springs from. And they're also a place where we reflect and change and and grow. I wanted to create a way to talk about those moments and to think about not like how we can make them better or how we can make them go quicker, because that's just not how any of it works, but to understand how crucial they are to our functioning. So fast forward to Enchantment, which is definitely the successor to Wintering. And that's a book about how we refind ourselves again, perhaps after one of those very difficult periods. And I wanted to think about how we could dig into our softer emotions, you know, our pleasure, our joy, our sense of awe and wonder and fascination, and how we could reignite those things to help to solve what I see as one of the big problems of our age, which is this sense of intense disconnection from the world around us. This feeling that something has happened, something has changed that leaves us feeling like we don't understand this world anymore and that it's actually become 
a frightening place, a place that we don't feel at home. And one of the answers, the only answer we've had to that so far is to keep fighting and arguing and, and yelling at each other. And I actually think that we need to start talking about how we nourish and nurture ourselves within those times and take great care of us so that we can go back out and change all over again and to help to influence it in a positive way. But we have to be intact within that. And so that that's where enchantment came from. You mentioned that the artifact right now, the unexpected artifact from being in lockdown and the experience of COVID is this burnout. And it made me wonder, like, do you think that the reason is because we didn't winter? Is it time to winter or is it time for <laughs> enchantment? Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure yeah. out where we are. Yeah. I think the truth is that this is an unprecedented time for loads of us. And that actually, for a lot of us, we've bounced from one winter to another I think the lockdowns were very wintry for loads of us in many different ways, though, you know, so they might have been because we felt isolated or lonely, or it might be because we felt like we didn't have any personal space. But equally, it could have been that we were the ones that were making everything run okay while other people were sick. I'm thinking about the people in the emergency services, for example, who worked and worked and worked during that time. And the problem with a time like that is that it's not as if humans haven't endured it before, but we've never endured it in an age when we can really talk about the effects. And what we're seeing now is something that was maybe hidden after previous big mass winterings, like the Second World War might be a good example, that there was this huge impact on mental and physical health after the event, but there, it tended to be concealed within families. And we don't do that anymore. And that's like, a, that's a really healthy artifact of our age. We now talk about it and we now show it. We go onto social media and we say, I'm not feeling it today. Mm -hmm. I'm not feeling it this week. I'm not feeling it this year. And it's another really important moment. I feel like for me, the big changes are happening now. I was surviving during that period and figuring out a way through and constantly improvising and worrying a lot. And now it feels like everything's come into roost a little. And I'm there are definitely changes that I'm being invited to make by the world. I, I'm seeing friends around me who are just straightforwardly exhausted. There's no other there's no other way to say that. They're just so deeply tired after a long time of coping that their bodies are saying, Absolutely not, you you're not pushing me through this anymore. Mm. It's been a big time. Yeah. When you mentioned World War II, I was like, God, it is in some ways like we have been through something that has globally affected all of us in a way that we're being forced to now mm -hmm. step back. I almost feel like we're in between these two places, right? Like when I first read Wintering, I imagined I wouldn't need it again until I was in the midst of a really difficult time. But when yeah. you said there are changes I'm being invited to make by the world, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely in that place right now. <laughs> you know, it's like I came out of winter and I was like dancing around and then it was 18 other things happened and my life has changed again in, in a few different ways. And so it's like, OK, well, how do you refind your footing? And is mm. that for you what enchantment's about is how to refind your footing? Yeah, how to refine your footing in a way that will help you when the next dip comes, it, you know, in, in full acknowledgement that. We're never going to solve this forever. It might not be a pandemic. Let's hope it's not a pandemic. But 
there will come another point of intense change or of exhaustion or of illness or of crisis, whatever that is, it will come round again. And so how do we create a mental and emotional and spiritual toolkit that allows us to enter into those times more gently and more openly and in a way that doesn't take us down so hard and lets us see them coming a little bit better. What caused you to use the elements as your sections in the book? That came late in the process. I was doing an edit and I was looking for a way to structure the book. And as I was taking an overview, it just jumped out at me that everything I was talking about was really elemental. That was the intelligence behind all of this, almost, that when we try and reconnect with like the pulse of the world around us, what we're actually doing is connecting with those very classical ideas of water, earth, fire and air. I found it really helpful to think about grounding in terms of earth and about how I needed to almost feel the weight of gravity weighing me down again, to feel like I was anchored again. And for water to to help me to think about flow and fluidity and how we can soothe ourselves with that, but also how we can feel the power, the intensity of water and what it represents. And when it came to fire, that was something I really needed to talk about. You know, this idea of fire as something that, yes, is destructive, but there are necessary destructions in our lives. There are things that we need to destroy. And there are things that we need to burn through sometimes in order to find clarity. And then I came to air, which seemed to me so much about letting go and releasing and letting things disperse. And once I had the idea, I realised I'd written that, I'd written about those elements already, but they were just present. It was this real aha moment, like, oh, that's what I was saying. Mm -hmm, Correct. (laughs) You know, for people who are not necessarily going to end up reading the book, but are wanting practices, what are the ways we can apply what you've talked about in the elements as we awaken wonder? (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things I talk about a lot in Enchantment is this sense of returning to a, a very childlike sense of connection. And I, you know, I'm not, I don't romanticize my childhood. You know, I'm not one of these people that thinks that it was all very perfect back then and everything's terrible now. But what I do notice is that I very easily made those very deep connections with simple things when I was a child. You know, I found it easy to sink deep into my attention and to engage with things that might seem trivial now. You know, I'd spend hours, I used to collect rocks, um, and I spent hours like holding my collection and rearranging it and just thinking about what, what that rock meant, like how old it was, like how slow the process was to form it. So one of the ways I think that we can get back to that sense of enchantment is to remember what we were drawn to as children. And that opens up such a simple pathway. So for me, I was always running towards the water and I still am. And I always wanted to hold a stone. And I want to do those things now. And actually they are quite often the answer when I'm feeling stressed and burned out is to return to those very elemental experiences. So I've always loved water, but I didn't grow up around easy access to water is the Bay Area. We certainly have our bridges and you have the ocean, but it's not like you're at the ocean every day. 
which a lot of people assume for Californians, Northern Californians, most of us are not at the ocean every day. You're not surfing all um, the time. That's no, really we're not. It's honestly. cold. It's cold <laughs> in like half a year and the water's freezing. Um, although some people do. I was drawn to animals. So I was kind of sitting here going like, huh, you said you collected rocks. I collected like roly polies when I was little. And then I had like hamsters, geckos, and I was fascinated by animals. So I was going, huh, is that earth? I think in lots of ways, animals can represent all different kinds of elements, depending on the animal. We have a bearded dragon upstairs that's my son's, and that's a very earthy experience. You know, he has to bathe under a, under light all the time to keep warm. And you pick him up and you really feel the way that the ground has radiated up towards him. It's really beautiful. Whereas, I don't know, if you had fish, I guess that would be a very different thing. Yeah. <laughs> that, that connection to animals is so profound. For those of us that love animals, and I'm, I'm one of those people, like I can't imagine living without animals. It's such an important part of how I soothe myself and come back into myself. That connection is such a lovely thing. Mm-hmm. It like turns your brain off. I mean, even just for the simplicity of like having a cat or a dog, being able to pet it or to look at a bearded dragon. What I loved about what you were saying is that you found that what you were drawn to as a child is often the answer or maybe like the antidote to the anxiousness and the burnout that a lot of us feel. Yeah, it's almost like you're drawn towards your own medicine. We've got very distant from our own healing. You know, we put that into the hands of someone else now and we don't expect to understand it. But there are much more basic yearnings that I think we feel that are really oriented towards our own healing. But I think we often reject those gut instincts. We've learned to do that as we've aged and grown. And we've learned to believe that somebody else has the answer to that. I think we need both, you know, we need that very natural elemental healing. And we need doctors too, like both can be true. It's not about saying that all of the wonderful scientific modern advancements are, are no good, like they're brilliant. But we also need to get something back that we've given away in our flight towards them. And yeah, that urge towards our own soothing, our own consolation is something that we can grow again within us. How do we do that? I really resonate with what you're saying. We've given our own healing away and we are actually drawn to our own medicine. There's so much we ignore or choose not to maybe learn about ourselves that can give us some of the medicine we're looking for? The thing I'd say first of all is to not expect it to come right away. It's not a switch that we can flick anymore because it's become very distant for a lot of us. And I think you have to train it back into yourself. We have deliberately advised not to listen to our gut instinct and to our intuition. And that can be a site of great trauma, actually. You know, we've been told to override those strong signals from our body to say this is not the right thing this is not healthy this is not safe for me and when we've switched it off to that extent it it's going to take some work to get it back and the question is whether we're willing to commit to that work there's no shortcut to it but you start by following those really subtle little breadcrumb trails and child and looking one of the reasons i talk about looking back to childhood such a lot is because that is one of those breadcrumb trails that we all have, like going back to those fascinations. And when you do that, you start to notice new ones too. You start to notice new attractions and new things you're drawn to. And that can create these wonderful new relationships 
but you have to then give yourself permission to follow them. And every now and then you hit this voice that says to you, that's not something you do. You don't wear that colour. You don't go to those places. You don't know enough about this. And so the question for me is then, okay, how do I learn? How do I learn? How do I make this important? How do I draw this in? Because I'm feeling the need towards it. Mm-hmm. I love the metaphor of coaxing. And I think one of the powerful things for people who might be listening and they're experiencing burnout or they're in the midst of a big transition or they're at a choice point or they're starting to ask questions, but they're not sure how to even begin to find the answers. And I think that's where a lot of us give up is like, well, I don't even know where to begin. So I may as well not begin at all and I'll just continue. I think what you're offering is how do we just track down the breadcrumbs that will lead us back to ourselves? Yeah, and I think one of the problems is that there will always be voices shouting a lot louder, saying, I know a really simple solution. It's 10 easy steps. Here you go. Follow this. And I know throughout my life, I've followed those over and over again. And I've always felt like I've failed. And I've always felt like I'm not good enough because they haven't worked for me. There's nothing simple about this life. And although we're beguiled by the idea that it could be simple, we can't solve it. We can't solve life. If it were that simple, everything would be fine. And so my message is always really complex. And I think people come to me after they've tried everything else. It's Mm -hmm. really hard and it's slow and it's a practice. It's not something you can learn once and for all and then never drop it again. You're going to drop it, but all of it's worth it because all of it is the journey and you are the journey. Yeah, it's really enticing. And like, sometimes I have to write things that are like quick, easy, like here's what I'm trying to share. And I do always hope that people don't look at that and go, oh, so that's how you do it. (laughs) Like, I'm still figuring it out. I'm over here reading wintering. (laughs) I'm like, I cry at night too. So like, don't think that, you know, (laughs) or like I wake up anxious too. Like, don't think that if you do these three things, nothing is going to ever go wrong again. It's like three tiny suggestions that might help a bit. Correct. correct. (laughs) There is a huge toolkit that you're going to have to fill up and you're going to have to not just fill it up, but keep doing things. And all I'm doing is giving you something to put in the toolkit, but by no means is it like going to take up more than an inch of space in a pouch. And let's hear that multiplicity and every little thing gives us a little extra step, but we've got to lower our expectations. It's honestly breaking us a little bit, I think, to have these huge expectations of what we can do. It's not realistic and it's not what life actually looks like. And I think a lot of us are dogged by this horrible sense of failure that comes from nothing more than our own completely grand expectations that can't ever, ever, ever be fulfilled. You know, I was reading an article, but it was about expectations where they'd done a study on people who had expectations and found that the higher the expectations, the higher the disappointment. Not mm. shocking, but, you know, you yeah. fall from a higher cliff yeah. as you keep on climbing. Sure. And for someone like me, who does have high expectations for myself and who's always been sort of this like more of an overachiever wanting things to all happen, wanting to do it all well. I struggled with the idea of like, well, where is the happy medium? Because I want to have expectations. You know, it felt like almost like not having expectations was giving up or complacency. And so like, where do you find 
that happy medium as we're trying to navigate this contentment? One of the problems behind that is is our individualism, honestly. Like, we don't spend enough time in community, so we don't see ourselves in context. And I think the more time we can spend with other people and understanding what actual lives look like rather than Instagram lives or, you know, like those big internet lives that look so impressive, I think that helps. But there's also a little exercise that I impose on myself every now and then when the yearnings get really big, you know, like when I have all of these things I really, really want to do. And I ask myself every day, what will I regret not having done at the end of the day? And I find that puts a load of things into context because quite often those things are the same every day. You know, I would regret it if I didn't take a walk today. I'd regret it if I didn't spend time with my son. I would regret it if I didn't write a little bit towards my next book. Like those are the things that are vitally important to me. And the rest of it, I'd be okay with if I didn't get done. So I try and keep recontextualizing what I actually am aiming at because it can't be everything. We'll be right back. We're taking a quick break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with the always lovely Catherine May. Talk to me about community, because one of my recent conversations was with someone who studies intimacy between friends, then also loneliness. I feel like so many of us are lonely, but mm. I want to talk about what we do differently. As I look at a book like Wintering and think about enchantment and kind of the work you're doing, a lot of times I think of this work as it must be done internally. I must be by myself. I must cocoon. <laughs> I must yeah. disappear. And yeah. you're saying the opposite is true. Well, I, th I think there's a balance between the two. And I think that a lot of the things we talk about now is on the individual scale. And that's because, and I include myself in this, 
I am inexperienced in being a true community member. And all of my training has been about Mm. me as a single entity Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. what I do to the world. And I was trying to dig into this enchantment and I don't have this set of ready-made answers about it, but I was thinking a lot about congregations and what congregations can mean to us. Like when we gather in a group with shared intent for a, a very certain time each week, one of the things that happens is that we are held to account. We're not only going to hear a positive view of our actions, we're not going to hear a one-sided, you're a superstar, keep going, it's brilliant, conquer the world, which is what Facebook will tell us if we let it. Like that's what we'll hear back over and over again. Everything you do is okay. Keep pushing, keep striving. Everyone else is wrong, you're right. Like that's the message we hear. And when we're in congregation, we hear something much more complex than that, which is you're not perfect, but we love and accept you anyway. And We all need to learn, again, myself totally included in this, to seek out communities that offer us that much more complicated understanding of ourselves and our duties and responsibilities balanced with our individual striving and achievements, rather than to keep tending towards this very oversimplified diet of rah, 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 off you go. Push, push, push. Yeah. And that's hard, right? That's walking away from the thing that makes everything sound easy. Except what we know is it doesn't turn out to be easy. That actually only thinking about ourselves and only thinking about how we can justify everything we do is ultimately exhausting and it makes us very lonely and it makes us feel very empty we need to let back in the balancing the counterbalancing for each of those values how do we start to remake those circumstances in which we can have that very complex presence again and where therefore we can bring our whole selves we can just come as our true humanity that's a big question for me in my life right now Yeah, you know, it makes me think about, you know, I grew up as a kid going to church almost every Sunday until sports took over our life. Right. And church was a natural part of my life. And I was actually just talking to a group of friends over the weekend. We all grew up in different religions. One was Jewish. I grew up Baptist. The other grew up Presbyterian, the other Catholic. And we were talking about the fact that there is like a really positive tethering that comes from having an experience with a group of people who are congregating around a common goal, but also a common belief about how we live in the world. And of course, this is such a complex conversation, right? I'm by no means saying like everybody should be religious or there's a certain, (laughs) none of that. I'm just saying that we are a very hyper individualistic society. And I think that sort of gets tossed on us. I try to take in all the information that I can. I know that the truth lies somewhere in the middle And so I look at this as like Mm -hmm. what we've lost when it comes to congregation, what we've gained when it comes to being individualistic and authentic and all these things we talk about. What are we giving up in that? I think to make it a bit more intersectional as well, different people are affected by this differently because one of the ways that our congregations used to function was on the work of women quite often. And then that very patriarchal authority was really violent towards an awful lot of people in loads of different ways. And 
there's no shame in the fact that loads of people have walked away from some very unhealthy congregations, but some really healthy ones are still thriving. I mean, that's why I love in my work to like not always answer the questions. I love to ask the questions. I think that's a really necessary part of the work and I don't yet have the answer. I mean, I point everyone towards Priya Parker's work on gathering. I think she's really brilliant at beginning to reformulate how we come together. But I don't think we know this one yet. But I do think the beginning of it is finding that urge towards resting in community rather than alone again, or having that as part of our spectrum of opportunity. You know, which is why I say when I think of congregations, I don't know the answer for the ones that are going to fit us today. And so to your point, there was oppression. There was all sorts of things that existed inside of the old. And so it was a different way of being. And you're making me think about like in coaching and in leadership and training in this work, we talk about meta view. And meta view is like the simple idea that when you're so stuck in like me, this problem is so big, this challenge is so big, that if you were to just imagine being able to look at yourself from however far above or look at everyone in the world and in your life from far above, what would you see? And it obviously changes your perspective. If you were to look at us like as a larger society and as we're talking about this idea of, you know, the challenges we're having, the ways in which we wake ourselves up and the point that we're at today, like what does the meta view tell you right now? The meta view tells me something that's actually quite invisible to me in everyday life, which is I'm part of an enormous web of experience and knowing. And to only focus on my node of that web is to see such a tiny bit of the picture. And it seems to me that that is a source of great pain for us, like only dwelling in that one node. And yet, as you say, we've walked very wisely away from a lot of old webs. And when a spider weeds a web, it degrades over time and those webs have degraded. But we need to find a way to weave a better web. And there are some skills that we might have grown up with or that our parents might have had that we can draw back on. And there are some new things that need to be made. And for me, because I'm this wildly optimistic little soul and I can't stop myself, <laughs> like I, I find that really exciting. I yeah. find that really, really exciting because I grew up, you know, like I'm a child of the 90s and 80s. And I grew up having this really clear sense of what wasn't going right in my society and also this sense that it was getting better. And that has now almost reversed actually. I don't feel like things are getting better. I don't feel that same sense that the world is automatically rolling towards more justice. But equally, I don't feel like I know so clearly (laughs) what those answers are in the way that, that I feel like I used to. And that, to me, opens up this whole tranche of work that we can do together and actually like the invention of the internet this amazing new technology and social media that's come with it shouldn't be seen as necessarily a bad thing it's just a really nascent technology and we haven't figured out how to use it properly yet and we've been involved in all of these grand social experiments with it that we're now beginning to see the problems with but let's not walk away from that because i think that that technology is there And we're going to see this new generation of really exciting 
they're so justice oriented they're so passionate they're so funny like you've only got to spend a bit of time on tiktok and you feel wildly optimistic about young people (laughs) i think they're going to take this technology that my generation made and the generation before me and they're going to figure out better things to do with it and i feel great faith in that Yeah, I mean, when I look at Gen Z, and I have to imagine, I think it's now Gen Alpha because we hit Gen Z. My son keeps telling me he's Gen Alpha, yeah. (laughs) He's Gen Alpha, yeah. I'm like, how could they not want to change the world? As a millennial, I don't think we're quite as justice-oriented or as movement-oriented. I think we're more, like, success-oriented. I don't know. it's It's a different way of being, so... I agree. I look at them and go, oh, my God, that's amazing. And like, I I feel some of that, but God, I wish I had more of it. But they're so they're so like native in the sites of change that we're all arguing about. The answers to those are really obvious to Gen Z. The language of gender, for example, is completely unproblematic to them. They have no problem with accepting gay people, for you know, just to just to sort of draw a big example, like None of it even bothers them. It's just basic and obvious to them. Right. It was a topic of conversation. I talk a lot about this with people in my life of like, what types of things have we said are political that are not political? They're just simply human rights conversations that have been politicized. That's a different thing than it being a political conversation. So yeah, it is really interesting. And and also you're right, it's hopeful. It's really hopeful. You can watch change happen in that way. And I remember, like, it makes me think back to being at primary school and our teacher setting up a debate one day that was like, is racism wrong? And I, <laughs> I know. And you're, and it's like, right, and, but that, and, at the, at the yeah, point was an okay conversation. Absolutely. So to her generation, yeah. like, that was a, that was up for debate. Whereas from, I remember, you know, at that age, like I was 10 years old thinking, this is not up for discussion. There's no debate here. And I now see my son thinking the same things about these things that are supposedly up for debate, but which are just obviously wrongheaded. And I think that's how it gets fixed. We're all busy shouting at each other over it. That's not what's going to solve it. It's going to be that next generation rolling through, making money, voting, you know, mm-hmm. taking up positions of power. And it's just going to be like the air they breathe them. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, things often have to break down to get built back up. When I think of the meta view of where we are, it's like we're in the breakdown. We're in the breakdown. Yeah. (laughs) And I hope to God, you know, that then, of course, things don't just break down and sit there. It's not human nature. It's like you break down and then you find a way to create something else. You weave a new web. I really resonate right now with this, like, the time and community, the thought about how do we hold the like sacredness of congregation and being with each other and how do we hold that with the need to also care about each other, to congregate, to be with each other? I interviewed Lama Rod Owens for my podcast. He's a, a Buddhist teacher and he was talking about the idea of apocalypse and how we keep threatening each other with the apocalypse. Like if we get it wrong, there'll be an apocalypse. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is the apocalypse. This is how the apocalypse feels. We are in that space. And actually the truth about apocalypse is that it's deeply painful and people get badly hurt. And also it brings about necessary change and it brings about a reordering of justice. Mm -hmm. And I found that thought like deeply painful and terrifying, but also deeply probably true. You know, like it really hit me that one. And to see ourselves in the mess rather than trying to avoid the mess. Like we have not avoided the mess. The mess is here. 
and there's energy that comes from that. Sorry, I've taken this conversation in a really dark direction. I'm so sorry. I can't stop myself. <laughs> no, I think you were meeting like the zeitgeist. You know, it's like um, I've been talking to people who are like, oh, you know, I think I'm supposed to be feeling this way. It's, you know, in the northern hemisphere, it's summer. We're out of lockdown. It's 2023. We think we're far away. And yet people were, I think we're all still grappling with what all of this is and like how we find ourselves post yeah. this experience. And that's why you wrote this yeah. book, right? Is like to give us all like <laughs> at least some guidance. Yeah. One thing to put in our toolkit. And I called you it a sure really did. And then you're like, and now to I'm in. gonna light you on fire. Yeah. <laughs> like now, right, here we go. Here we go. Um so tell me, Catherine, what I wanna ask you, I actually want you to tell me what these words mean to you that you've used. What does it mean to awaken? It's a slow process. And it's a process of your senses coming back online. It doesn't happen all at once. It's an action. It's a cycle. It's not a momentary thing. I love practices rather than one-off steps. And so for me, awakening is inviting that slow process of coming back to our senses again. Well, and you say coming back, which means like awakening is it's which I love because I think of like spiritual practices where it's like you've always been there, but so much has covered you up that you have to invite or find a way to practice coming back to what was always there. It's peeling off layers. It's getting back to our direct sensing of something that's actually divine. Like if I can use a big word like that, because I, for me, that giant connected human community is divine. And that really direct experience of humanity is divine. But it gets covered in like dust and bits of debris from everything that's happened to us. But if we can peel that back, we come in contact with something that feels hot and fast and urgent and true. That's what that means to me. And how would you describe awe? Mm. It is the experience of feeling tiny in a vast universe, like not thinking about it rationally and intellectually, but knowing it in your bones. And it comes to you directly in a moment. And it's a wonderful resituation of human experience. And finally, what is enchantment? Mm, well, <laughs> it is not unfortunately talking to unicorns or <laughs> believing in fairies <laughs> I'm going to do it backwards I'm going to say it's the opposite sure. of disenchantment which is a space we feel very comfortable in and that implies there was an enchantment in the first place if we've become disenchanted and so enchantment is this feeling of connection with all the world around us that comforts and restores us but also gives us a radical understanding of what we actually are and opens up the space to explore that so it's a verb or a way of living yeah it feels it's verby i like that it feels verby yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a noun and a verb at the same time isn't it i think for me like it's that everything kind of a word and i love that it's got that association with magic and with spell casting actually and with singing like the chant and enchantment is linked to the idea of song which I think is just such a beautiful way of connecting with that feeling actually that feeling of generating and drawing in at the same time that breathing in and out that exchange yeah 
You reminded me of, I was probably three months ago, I was walking. I live in a new neighborhood and I was walking my dogs and it was a Sunday morning and the sun was out and it, it wasn't summer yet. So it was like, I don't know, brisk, but I heard this noise. <laughs> I was walking past, it's like these this row of homes on, you know, one of the regular streets in New York City. And I was like, what is that? And it was coming out of an apartment building, but I think it was actually a townhome. And the door opened as I was walking the dogs and they were sniffing and it was singing. And I was like, I can't believe I didn't recognize, like I knew they were singing, but it was like the moment that you realize I was like, oh, this is a congregation of people who've come together on this Sunday morning. And in that moment, I was like, oh... This is a part of life that I felt at the time. I was like, oh, I'm missing this. Like, this is a part of life that I would actually love to have back. I love that, like, our conversation is about knowing things have existed before, maybe somewhere deep down, and then kind of coming back to those things. Because that's things like singing, which is so simple, but a group of people together singing can be so darn powerful that you're like, I cried. I was like, oh, my God, I want to go in there. I can't. They don't know me. (laughs) I'm like the crazy lady with dogs. It's like, (laughs) But it was that sense that, like, I want that. And I think a lot of us want whatever our version of the that is, where we feel this sense of being, you know, grounded and hopeful in the possibility of feeling enchantment again. That's just such a gorgeous image and I feel that too. I was always a chorister and I gave it up because the commitment was hard and everything about it was hard. And I now think about how it felt to merge your voices with other people's voices and to truly be singing, like not singing like when you have to sing at school and you're trying to mumble into your hymn book as much as possible or whatever, Um, but to really sing with other people. And to feel that sense of intertwining and deep, unspoken cooperation and respect, it's beautiful. Like, how do we make that again without the bits that we quite rightly didn't want? Catherine, I'm going to have you complete these three statements. I assume they had to have changed since we last spoke. Better humans are? Interconnected. Better work is? Human. And a better world has? A multiplicity of people who love each other. I love that. That's a very, that's a very like lovely, it's a small world after all statement, but I'm going with it. That's fine. We're going with it. I'm falling deep into idealism because I think it's probably, I hope it's closer to realism than we think, you know? Somewhere, some of those two lines intersect. Surely we've got to find it. Correct. (laughs) Catherine, thank you so much. I obviously always want you back. Take me anytime. I I love it. I love talking to you. Thank you. Same here. Same here. Thank you. I could talk to you forever. I know. Let's do it again. That was author Catherine May. Check out her books, Wintering and Enchantment. One big thing before we go. What struck me most about our conversation was what we gain by being in intentional community or in congregation with each other. Having people around us that we can connect to, that we can relate to, that we can support, that can make us understand that we are but a drop in the ocean. As you probably heard from both of us and have felt yourself, we are much better together than we are on our own. And though we may not have the answers yet about what specific communities look like, how we rebuild these, how we reconnect to each other, it's a really meaningful question to ponder. How do we reincorporate supportive community for the betterment of ourselves and each other? If this conversation is you thinking about rediscovering enchantment, 
sure has me thinking about that. Share it with someone you care about and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one sentence review telling me what you loved about this episode. As always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter at www.linkedin.com slash ITA. That's www.linkedin.com slash ITA. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gadron makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.